You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Here's your host, Mike Seeley. Hello and welcome to the Diversity Matters podcast show where we embrace all people from different backgrounds, perspectives and experiences. I'm your host Mike Seeley and I'm excited to explore different topics that address the importance and benefits of diversity and inclusion in our society and in the workplace. My guest this week is a friend and ex-colleague from my time at HP. Josephine Van Zanten has been active as an HR executive most of her global career, working in Fortune 500 organizations. As a senior vice president, she oversaw departments of DNI, culture change, and leadership and organizational development. Her experience spans across various industries, which include HP and Royal Dutch Shell. She is currently the Chief Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Officer at the International Institute for Management Development, better known as the IMD and works as a senior advisor with global organizations. Josephine, welcome to Diversity Matters. Well, Mike, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, it's it's great to have you on. And, you know, I like to start at HP because that's where we first met. So if you can just talk a little bit. Yeah, if we can talk a little bit about some of your roles at HP, how you got them, how you got into HP in the first place. I got into HP uh, by doing my MBA thesis, Uh, actually. I did my MBA at the University of Geneva. We had to do a thesis, and I was very lucky that MBA took in graduates to work uh, on special projects. So this is what got me into HP, and I fell in love with HP immediately. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I look back at, at my time at HP. It's probably one of the best companies I worked for the whole kind of philosophy around uh, culture, um, quality, all of those things that just made that company a special place to be. Yeah. In particular, in terms of talent development, I think they stood out mm-hmm. uh, hugely compared to some of the other companies I've had the privilege of, of working with, of course. But I have to say, overall, I've been lucky to work for some amazing organizations throughout. It's been a lot of fun to have been able to contribute in these companies. Yeah. Now, when I think when we first met, I can't remember what role I was doing at the time, but I, I think you were briefly doing a marketing role. My early career was in marketing in the support division, working on what today is a very well-known initiative called customer experience and customer loyalty programs. But back then, we were piloting and designing and initiating that. And in fact, you were you were my manager, Mike. <laughs> Such a long time ago. I know, I know. Yeah, those were pretty amazing times. And um, you might recall that HP moves people very quickly from one role to another, or they did back then, two years in a role, and then you'd be yeah. poached to go to another role. And so the exposure you had early on was absolutely formidable. Yeah, that that's great. And obviously, one of the roles that you moved into was diversity and inclusion. And I think one yes, of the most right. fascinating things about that is 
there couldn't have been many corporate companies that even had that type of role in place at the time. In Europe, it certainly was newer. Um, oil and gas have been very active in this field already for some time. And then local IBM, P&G, uh, they were active. But the majority of the large corporations really were not active on yeah. diversity and inclusion. And even when I was approached for the role, I refused it a few times. Oh. <laughs> um, I actually said, no, it's not a serious role. It has no credibility. It will be killing my career. So thank you, but no, thank you. And interestingly enough, the general manager of Europe, Middle East and Africa was very insistent. And then one day he said, Josephine, what if you make this role into the role that people will want to take from you once you leave, once you move to your next position. And I thought that was a really good yeah. challenge to take something that had very little or no credibility and turn it into something that brought business value, made yeah. a difference for our employees, but also for our brand and really also contributed to the community. And so I, I took that challenge and I haven't looked back since it's yeah. been the kickoff of a you know many year career in this field, right? And just tell me at the time when you uh, took that role on, what were some of the challenges that you were working on at that particular time? the The challenges that we had in Europe, Middle East, and Africa were very specific. It was a new concept. Um, it was associated with North America, so the immediate reaction was to say, we don't have laws here. We don't have equal opportunity or affirmative action. So we don't have any issues here. Uh, we don't have, believe it or not, I heard many times, we don't have any black people here. Um, you know, so very, very early on, I realized I had to focus on the business case and really help people understand just how unbelievably important it is to have representation of stakeholders, partners, and clients uh, in the leadership positions and beyond to be able to grow, innovate, and um, and reflect a market that you operate in. Yeah. So that was the very early approach, so to speak, but also really stood out is um, our focus in HP was, of course, the five big Ds, you know, gender, age, nationality, disability, sexual orientation, and then inclusion. So you had these six areas that we worked on. But what I also noticed very quickly is that a lot of women were not willing to step up. They felt like tokens. They were not mm -hmm. comfortable to say there were issues or concerns. So you also had to work a whole lot on creating psychological safety so that people could actually, in a constructive way, highlight that maybe there were some hurdles that we should yeah. address. And yeah, that's really, yeah, it's really interesting because I, even my time at HP, I was for a long time the only black manager in the UK um, and one of very, very few in Europe. But I do remember at the time the UK managing director, I I did some work with him where he was getting rather frustrated because he was struggling to attract more black people into the organization. Um, and he, I can remember having a conversation with him where he said, Mike, do you think I should just have a quota put in place so that we can get the numbers up? And I thought, please don't do that at the time, because I said one of the, 
one of the challenges that people will, will think about is, hey, was I hired because of the color of my skin and not because of my ability and experience and, and knowledge? So uh, thankfully, he didn't do that. But it kind of kicked off the beginning of Colleague Run Network, where we started to look at some of the, the challenges and the issues. So I can look back and think about HP, again, such a great company, yeah, being yeah. one of the first I know to really mm-hmm. be serious about diversity and mm-hmm. inclusion across the company. So anyway, as, as you were saying earlier on, it really kind of shaped your career. And yeah, you did, certainly. Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong here. You moved on to Royal Dutch Shell. I as, moved on to Royal Dutch Shell yeah. as the global uh, yeah. chief DNI officer. Had a different title at the time, but I was yeah. responsible for the now entire me, organization. At, yes, at that particular time, um, we all know Shell is a huge company. I mean, how yes. many employees did they have there at the time? It had 120,000 employees spread across. Wow. I think it was 180 countries or 170 countries. It was Sorry. truly a global organization with and all the challenges responsibility. that brings along. Yeah. yeah. And I'm assuming, and you know, did that open your eyes more to now you're working with many, many more countries, um, probably different types of roles? What, what were the differences you saw at, at Shell? And what were some of the strategies that you actually put in place to kind of improve the, the culture and the inclusion there? It's a really good question, Mike, because there were a lot of differences. Shell had actually been active in the area of diversity and inclusion for since the mid-90s. And they had already won the very coveted Catalyst Award. So when I came in, I really needed to find out, so what area do I get to explore and develop and do more of? Uh, and of course, now I had a global responsibility versus a regional responsibility. So when you have a global responsibility, whatever you set as the DNI strategy needs to be implementable in all the countries that you lead. And countries have different laws and different cultures. So we always needed to find this fine line as to what is it that we do as a company uh, that is aligned to our business strategy and our values and beliefs. And what is it that also supports local business in terms of bringing in talents, attracting the best, the brightest, developing them and so forth. So it became a a much more structured role, I think. It was much more about governance and much more about developing a strategy. But I also felt it was very important to be very tangible and ensure that there were real deliverables. So some of the things that my team developed um, were toolkits for managers, how to lead inclusive meetings. So we focused a lot on behaviors. How do you lead an inclusive meeting? What are some of the behaviors that you need to exude as a leader in an organization to foster inclusion, to role model inclusive leadership? And this can be as simple as, um, you know, making sure that the assertive people make space for the introverted people Mm -hmm. or uh, provide a little bit more cultural savviness by reminding people that Western folks tend to jump in conversations and people necessarily not from all regions have the same ability to jump in conversations and that as a leader, you need to create that space. So we made it, we made the actions very tangible. Yeah. Now, interestingly, I mean, that's, that sounds like a very great way to try and drive inclusion. But if we, you go back to that particular time, it's probably 
a very male-dominated environment, particularly at the most senior management level. So how was this program perceived? How were you perceived as, as a woman trying to drive this change in that type of environment? Did you get a lot of pushback? Did you get a lot of people that were in denial that there was any kind of issue at all? How, how, how was that for you? So it's true that oil and gas is male-dominated, but it's also true that oil and gas has already worked on diversity and inclusion for decades because they understand the license to operate requirement very well. They understand that they have to reflect the world that they operate in to be able to obtain contracts. And that means that diversity and inclusion is part of a leader's responsibility. So the hurdles weren't as big as I initially thought. I came in possibly even with my own bias. And then I realized this organization was already quite mature when it came to diversity and inclusion. And we were very lucky in so far that we had large budgets to be able to develop a lot of material for managers to work with. Now, probably uh, you asked if there were women in leadership positions. We had some very large businesses. The gas business for liquid gas business was led by a woman at the time. And our downstream business at one point in time was also led by a woman. So there were a lot of women role models already in place that were very much uh, sponsors for diversity and inclusion and were ready and willing to step up. But we also focused a lot on uh, nationality. We had a big focus on making sure that local talents could reach leadership positions in regions and in countries. And we set up special talent programs for leaders to meet local talents and get to know them. And then we also focused on disability and people of color and ethnicity. Uh, we had a very broad palette of areas of diversity that we felt were important to the organization and to the community that the organization operated in. But more importantly, we focused on behaviors, right? What is an inclusive behavior how do you foster inclusion? How do you avoid micro inequities from disengaging people? And were there ever times where you, you know, once you kind of worked on helping people to understand and, and change those behaviors, were there many complaints that came up as a result of poor behavior, um, either from women or from people of color that, that being treated badly or bullied? You know, how did that play out at all? Well, when... When you have an organization with 120,000 people or 200,000 or some companies today have 600,000 people, you really represent a society that you operate in. So you get all kinds of behaviors and that can include sexism, homophobic statements, uh, racist statements. And there was truly a zero tolerance, tolerance attitude around that. And one example that I can give is... Um, when obviously we had targets, not quotas, but targets. And I remember in one of the senior executive meetings um, or meeting with the top 100, uh, one engineer said, I guess I have to wear skirts and heels now to be promoted around wow. here. Uh, and the CEO took that question and he actually said to this particular leader, he said, look, if I still have to explain the business case of diversity and inclusion to you, then maybe you need to think if this is still the right organization for you. So there wasn't really an option given. This was seen as a very important part of doing business. 
and we didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about the business case yeah. any longer. We wanted to spend time about what can you do as a leader to make a difference in this organization. So in that sense, that was a very mature environment. If I go back to HP, we really had to start with the basics, right? We had to set targets. We had to explain the business case. We had to explain why we were focusing on diversity and what inclusion was. So it was it was a very different, you could tell one organization had worked on this for yeah. much longer than the other. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because if you look at a lot of companies today, and particularly since the George Floyd incident, a yes, lot of companies yes. are still at that starting point. Yes, that's and right. It's, yeah, that's it's right. crazy, right, that, you know, you've got Shell for many, many years have been well-established yeah, in this yeah, space, yeah. even HP have yeah. been. Why do you think it yes. is that many companies today have not really put too much focus and attention into diversity and inclusion, especially given all the benefits that it can bring, right? Yeah, I think I think people feel the jury is still out on the benefits. Interestingly enough, um, when I do presentations today across industries, I actually start by saying I'm not going to talk to you about the business case because if you're still not convinced that I encourage you to Google business case, diversity, equity, and inclusion and read the many hundred articles that uh, appear from very respected schools and universities. But um, I think one of the reasons it hasn't come up is that you still have a predominance of a very powerful in-group in leadership positions today, right? And this in-group looks the same across industries. Uh, now, without vilifying certain groups, it's usually white Western men. And I don't know that white Western men necessarily feel it's the right time or necessarily feel there is a concern there's still a concept that meritocracy prevails, that uh, people don't have biases or stereotypes. I think the organizations that I work with now that are starting to work on diversity, equity, and inclusion as a result of Me Too, BLM, COVID, digitization, Generation Z coming in, millennials in management mm -hmm. positions, are waking up to a completely different world. And are realizing that, yeah, they need to address this to attract these new talents and retain them. But my biggest surprise is that we haven't, there hasn't been a big learning curve in the last 20 years. These organizations still start with the same questions. Oh, we need to set up networks or let's do networks. Of course, networks are important and they do play a role. But your start really has to be, why are we doing diversity and equity for our organization? What's our 30-second sales pitch on that? What's our business case? What's our moral case? Um, you know, how, how do we want to reflect clients, customers, stakeholders, and partners? And so these very basic elements often are not yet completely yeah. adopted and understood. And I'm surprised that I'm, I mean, I'm happy to, and I do it with great pleasure, but I'm also, in, in a sense, a little bit surprised that we start at these basics uh, in some organizations. Do you, do you think it's a top-down approach or do you think this is an approach that has to come in all directions within an organization? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, I think change management uh, needs to come from a bottom-up request, need, uh, wish. But I think top-down needs to offer structure, boundaries, 
and very clear vision and expectations and set these expectations and then follow up to them. So this is where governance come in, comes in, a vision, uh, where do you want to be in five years, in 10 years, what is it that you want to focus on and so forth. But I think it is really the employees that are in the organization that should manifest themselves and actually say, you know, our expectations today is that there is equal pay, that everybody does have the same opportunity and it's not always the same group that gets promoted or recognized and mm -hmm. that we do eliminate hurdles and actually proactively seek out these hurdles that have appeared in the system and that we accept they are there and that we eliminate them. So I, I think it's both really. Yeah. That's great. And, and actually, you know, you are really doing something about this, you know, you're at the IMD um, where I'm assuming they run, is management development programs and one of the yes. key things is you know educating on diversity yeah. and inclusion how, how is that going so our motto is challenging what is and inspiring what can be and i think that says it all really is that we like to uh, challenge leaders and how they address diversity how they address equity how they address inclusion today and inspire them really to foster an inclusive organization and, and role model inclusive leadership in everything they say and do every single day, right? Now, of course, we have women development programs catered towards women specifically. Uh, we're in the process right now of designing another program uh, to drive diversity, equity, and inclusion. And of course, I do virtual sessions with clients as well. So we have a portfolio of different programs available. But I think uh, when I look back on our own campus, right, um, we were doing really well and we've made a lot of progress. But as everyone else, there's also more to be done mm -hmm. still because this is a journey. And I'm afraid to say you never get to the end. The yeah. world changes, the environment changes. All of a sudden, Generation Z comes in and they want to have a different working environment. So are you going to say no? Or are you going to say, so what does that mean? What works in our environment? How can we adjust it? It's really about being open to what's happening in society and how can you contribute to making sure that you bring in the best talents and then develop them to reach their absolute utmost potential. Yeah, excellent. Now, let me ask you, if you were to look back on your career and particularly right at the beginning of your career, um, is there anything that, with the knowledge that you have today, is there anything that you would have done differently in your approach? Would you have had a different style, personality? What would that, what would the Josephine look like with the knowledge you have today back then? That's such a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. How long do I have to answer that, Mike? Um, I, I don't have uh, a lot of regrets in my career. I have some regrets. Mm. I think like everyone else, you fail at times and then you learn from that failure. And then you wish, you know, I hadn't failed. Uh, and then I wouldn't have hurt certain people or frustrated others. But uh, I probably would have worked on being a, a better people manager. Uh, that was... Um, that was an interesting road. I'm still good friends with a lot of people who reported to me, and some of them have actually moved on to be heads of DEI for, in one case, the BBC, in another mm -hmm. case, Microsoft Asia. So 
the talents were developed for sure. But I think uh, the bar was high for the team all the time. Of course, you work in, in organizations that are high-performing organizations and diversity and inclusion was really seen as a soft thing and often as a cost center. So the pressure to deliver real tangible value add was actually quite high. So I, I certainly felt that pressure all the time. And maybe I could have been better at not passing on that pressure to the team. So that's mm -hmm. a mea culpa help put out there. <laughs> okay, great. And then looking forward, you know, if you if you look at five years down the road, what do you think the workplace and society in general will look like? Will it, will it still be the same or do you think it would have improved by then, got much better? What's your view? So we live in a very polarized world, as you know, and this polarization is is so extreme. Um, when you and I worked at HP um, more than a decade ago, that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And I have to hope and I have to wish for my children, for my grandchildren, that, uh, that our world will move away from this polarization and move towards the concept that everybody's dignity matters, everybody deserves respect, regardless of who they love, what they look like, what gender they are, uh, what age they have, and so forth. And so my, my true hope is that we have now moved to the utmost polarization and that we will see Generation Z pull us back from this and become, again, a little bit more balanced. I'm seeing hopeful signs in mm -hmm. some countries. Um, I'm seeing other companies even stepping up when they see this strong polarization. So I'm, I, I certainly want to hope that we're moving towards a more balanced society where people can be who they are and be respected and obtain the dignity and have the same laws and the same access and yeah. the same, you know, Excellent. interaction with everyone. Great. And, you know, you, you've spoken several times around kind of the Gen Z's coming into the workplace. And, you know, yeah. we really have a real multi-generational workforce today. You know, <laughs> somewhere in the region of four, possibly five yes. generations are working together, um, which brings on its challenges at times. What do you think can be done to ensure that we are having a real collaborative, multi-generational workforce in, in organizations? So some of the practices that we certainly apply here at IMD, but that you also see in large corporations is that you have networks of the uh, Generation Z who offer input to managers. So they can shadow meetings, uh, offer their insights. Um, there's reverse coaching also taking place in some instances. Um, because we, we tend to see that Generation Z work in teams and on projects more than they work in silo and on a job. They like this connectivity. They also like to have meaning and purpose. Um, and they also want to make a difference to the planet. And this is generalizing it a lot, but I think I'm probably hitting in the middle of the alpha, uh, of the Gauss curve here. And so these best practices can only be enhanced. We can only listen more to these generations, but, you know, we tend to say you haven't, you don't have enough experience to this generation. You'll see, you'll find out later, you'll figure it out. 
But this is the most connected generation generation that has ever been. They connect with people on the other side of the globe. Um, they are more digital than we can even dream of uh, at this end of the spectrum and at my end of the spectrum. And so as long as we listen to them, as long as we take into account their input, take it seriously, I think that's the important part of it, and act on it, then I think we can build these important bridges that allow us to have a real positive and well-functioning cross-generational society, working environment. But I want to point out something. I Mm -hmm. presented to a class not so long ago, uh, an MBA class, and our MBAs are around 32, 33, so they've already had management positions. And one part of the feedback was, uh, Josephine is too old, she shouldn't be talking to us. So ageism goes both ways. Uh, It's not just... uh, you know, when you're 50 and above, you think the 20 year olds, you roll your eyes. Yeah, yeah, let them figure it out. <laughs> but it's also the 25 plus who are saying, you know, people 50 and above, I, they don't have credibility with me. So it's it's really also about opening bridges on both sides. Yeah, yeah no, I totally agree. And it's one of the things we're uh, doing in the company that I work in is we are looking at um, age discrimination and looking at driving a better culture of age inclusion you know we are we're working with an external company we are looking to ensure that particularly colleagues over 50 have still got value in the organization and included with that is actually hiring talent in because we have Mm -hmm. a mindset where Mm -hmm. you know you look at someone who looks like they're over 50 and they've already written them off and we want yes. to create an environment where, you know, we are still hiring people who are over a certain age into the organization yeah. who can bring, yeah. you know, their experience, their level of maturity, some stability as well in the business mm-hmm. because younger people want to move to the next role after 18 months, two years. Um, so mm-hmm. you do need to have that level of stability throughout um, an organization. So you're right, it does go both ways. And I think in in some instances, it's probably a lot worse in the opposite way where the younger generation are looking at the older generation and almost thinking, well, you shouldn't be here. You're actually sitting in my role now. I, I should be sitting in that role. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the attitude that they're coming with. And um, they also have to learn as well how to make sure that they collaborate uh, better. So I, I get it that we do need to listen to the Gen Zs and the millennials, but equally they they also need to listen to um, the older generation in the workplace too. And finding that balance can be a little bit tricky at times. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, Josephine, what would you say would be your legacy? What do you want to, you know, when you whenever it is that you decide that you know you're going to stop working. What legacy do you want to to leave? Somebody gave me a little present the other day. And the present is a nameplate, except that the nameplate didn't have my name on it. It had a little saying. And the little saying was, and I quote, I don't want to be a lady. I want to be a legend. And I thought that was actually a fabulous little present because, um, I am pondering what will the next 15, 20 years of my life look like. Mm -hmm. 
And so this question of what has been my contribution is very big on my mind. Um, I, I hope that uh, I will have made for sure this position ready for somebody who can step in. This position didn't exist here where I am. So it's now created. It has a base, a foundation, a vision. It has delivery. So the next generation, when time is right, can step in and say, I will now make this better. That would be, you know, my yeah. dream here. Um, I think on a broader scale, I've been able to influence a lot of heads of diversity and inclusion through my mm -hmm. advisory. I've worked with an inordinate amount of industries and companies. I've brought in change models, experience, know-how, thought leadership. I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with CEOs that were still struggling on dilemmas, uh, difficult dilemmas like religion and certain aspects mm -hmm. of diversity, or how do I deal with local culture and my global values and beliefs? Uh, conversations that every CEO probably asks him or herself at one point in time. And so I know that I've been lucky enough to change um, people's mindset and hopefully through that make this world a better place for Fantastic. people from underrepresented groups. And um, I want to undo what I said, because it wasn't luck. Women always say I was so lucky. I was so lucky, but it was a little bit of luck, but it was mostly unbelievable hard work, investment, resilience, persistence mm -hmm. over a couple of decades yeah. and willingness to take risks, speaking truth to power, expose myself. And so if I can influence other women uh, to take similar positions or people from underrepresented groups to take similar positions, then I think that will be a, a legacy to be proud of. That's fantastic. And you've already made a significant start. I mean, you, you went into the role at HP as the first person to do it. So you left something in EMEA, somebody else. yes in europe and yeah. east africa yeah absolutely yeah. so it seems like you know if you've done the same thing at imd where this role didn't exist before and you're going to leave it for somebody then to take it and really yeah, take it to the next level hopefully yes yes you know, that's absolutely fantastic you know i look back at your career um and i must admit when we left you know, both left hp kind of lost touch a bit and it was only last year, I think I reached out to you once the George Floyd um, situation had happened because I'd seen a post on LinkedIn from your company. But I was also last year um, doing a, a Cambridge Business School, Judge Business School course on DE&I. And fantastic course. I love looking at and working on case studies. And one of the case studies was authored by yourself. And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I know this person. You know, so so it was great to to work for her. And I thought, wow. Such an honor. To... Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought I need to get back in touch with you and speak to you. And you know, you've done some wonderful things um throughout your career. And I'm I'm pretty certain you have well, Mike... influenced and changed a lot of people. Thank you so much. I'm so humbled and honored to hear somebody like you, who I respect so deeply, say this. One of the things I remember, you and I used to go, I used to drive to France once a week for my work, uh -huh. from Geneva to Grenoble. Yes. And I every now and days. then you would be with me in the car mm -hmm. uh, when you were my manager. And for sure, <laughs> you know, when you were in the car, we'd be stopped at the border coming back to Switzerland. 
when I came back on my own, I was never stopped. And so it happened enough that I noticed it. And I have to say that that has stayed with me my entire life, that experience of privilege, you know, mm-hmm. wow. um, uh, white privilege. Uh, yeah. And I've used that example so many times again and again to say, you know, we think uh, we have it hard, but the fact is, you know, we have unbelievable invisible yeah. privilege and so if i can leave another legacy is for people to realize just when you have privilege use your privilege to help others mm-hmm. fantastic now that's that that's great well listen josephine i want to first of all thank you so much it was very very insightful and inspiring um of course i wish you every success with everything that you're doing especially at the imd i'm sure that a lot of those on these programs are, are coming away with their newfound knowledge and and putting it into practice and that's all due to you so good luck with everything that you do kind of going thank you thank you for having me it's been a real pleasure yeah thanks very much take care bye for now you too bye-bye for listening to this episode of diversity matters if you liked what you heard then be sure to hit like and subscribe and we'll see you next time